Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. We're continuing with Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain, and um, the boys are in a bit of trouble, uh, Jim and, and Huck. Their boat's just been destroyed, and um, Huck has lost Jim. Um, he's just clambered onto shore, he's walked for a little bit and stumbled upon a house, and has run into some... Rather ferocious looking dogs. So, let's dive in and see how he gets on. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn was written in a time when terrible slurs and actions were used to oppress the African American people. These words and actions still cause harm today, and I, Isaac, would never wish to do so to any of these people. Any racial slurs that occur in this book shall be bleeped to avoid causing offence, and to guarantee that I can get paid for making these videos. I do have a belief that you cannot censor the past and that by trying to censor books, you are trying to pretend that the actions of our ancestors didn't happen. And for this reason, the book shall be remaining unchanged apart from these little bleeps. If you still find this triggering or offensive, then please check out another book. Huckleberry Finn By Mark Twain Chapter 17 In about half a minute, Somebody spoke out the window without putting his head out and says, Be done, boys. Who's there? I says, It's it's me. Who's me? George Jackson, sir. What do you want? I, I don't want nothing, sir. I only want to go along by, but the dogs won't let me. What are you prowling around here at this time of night for, eh? I weren't prowling around, sir. I, I fell overboard off the steamboat. Oh, you did, did you? Strike a light there, somebody. What'd you say your name was? George Jackson, sir. I I'm only a boy. Look here. If you're telling the truth, you needn't be afraid. Nobody hurt you. But don't try to budge. Stand right where you are. Rouse out Bob and Tom, some of you. Fetch the guns. George Jackson, there anybody with you? No, sir. N nobody. I heard the people stirring around inside the house now, and see a light. The man sung out. Snatch that light away, Betsy, you fool. Ain't you got any sense? Put on the floor behind the front door. Bob, if you and Tom are ready, take your places. All ready. Now, George Jackson, do you know the Shepherdsons? No, sir. Never heard of them. Well, that may be so. It mayn't. Now, already. Step forward, George Jackson. And mind, don't you hurry. Come out of slow. If there's anybody with you, let him keep back. If he shows himself, he'll be shot. Come along now. Come slow. Push the door open yourself. Just enough to squeeze in, you hear? I didn't hurry. I couldn't if I wanted to. I took one slow step at a time, and there weren't a sound. Only I thought I could hear my heart. The dogs were as still as the humans, but they followed a little behind me. When I got to the three-log doorstep, I heard them unlocking and unbarring and unbolting. I put my hand on the door and pushed a little, and a little more, till somebody said, There, that's enough. Put your head in. I'd done it, but I judged they would take it off. The candle was on the floor. And there they all was, looking at me, and me at them, for about a quarter of a minute. 
three big men with guns pointed at me, which made me wince, I tell you. The oldest, grey and about sixty, the other two, thirty or more. All of them, fine and handsome, and the sweetest old grey-headed lady, and back of her, two young women, which I couldn't see right well. The old gentleman says, There, I reckon it's all right. Come in. As soon as I was in, the old gentleman, he locked the door and barred it and bolted it. And the young men came in with their guns, and they all went in a big parlor that had a new rag carpet on the floor, and got together in a corner that was out of range of the front windows. There weren't none on the side. They held the candle and took a good look at me, and all said, Why, he ain't a shepherdson. Nope, there ain't no shepherdson about him. Then the old man said he hoped I wouldn't mind being searched for arms, because he didn't mean no harm by it. It was only to make sure. So he didn't pry into my pockets, but only felt outside with his hands, and said it was all right. He told me to make myself easy, and at home, and tell all about myself. But the old lady says, What bless you, soul? And poor thing's as wet as he can be. Don't you reckon it may be he's hungry? True for you, Rachel. I forgot. So the old lady says, Betsy, this was a n- woman, you fly around and get him something to eat, quick as you can, poor thing. And one of you girls go and wake up Buck and tell him. Oh, here he is himself. Buck, take this little stranger and get his wet clothes off him and dress him in some of yours that's dry. Buck looked about as old as me, 13 or 14, or long there, though he was a little bigger than me. He hadn't on anything but a shirt, and was very frowsy-headed. He come in gaping and dipping one fist into his eyes. He was dragging a gun along with the other one. He says, There ain't no Shepherdsons around. They says no. T'was a false alarm. Well, he says, If there'd been some, I reckon I got one. They all laughed, and Bob says, Why, Buck, they might have scalped us all. You've been so slow in coming. Well, nobody come after me. It ain't right. I always kept down. I don't show. Never mind, Buck, my boy, says the old man. You'll have to show enough in all good time. Don't you fret about that. Go along with you now and do as your mother told. When we got upstairs to his room, he got me a coarse shirt and a roundabout and pants of his, and I put them on. While I was at it, he asked me what my name was, but before I could tell him, he started telling me about a blue jay and a young rabbit he catched in the woods the day before yesterday and he asked me where Moses was when the candle went out. I said I didn't know. I hadn't heard about it before. No way. Well, guess, he says. How am I going to guess, says I, when I never heard tell about it before? But you can guess, can't you? It's just as easy. Which candle, I says. Why, any candle, he says. I don't know where he was, says I. Where was he? Why, he was in the dark. That's where he was. Well, if you knowed where he was, why'd you ask me for? Why, blame it, it's a riddle, don't you see? Say, how are you going to stay here? You got to stay always. We can have just booming times. They don't have no school now. Do you want a dog? I've got a dog. And he'll go in the river and bring out chips that you throw in. Do you like to come up Sundays and all that foolishness? You bet I don't, but Ma, she makes me. Confound these old britches. I reckon I better put them on. I'd rather not. It's so warm. You all ready? All right. Come along, old hoss. Cold corn pone, cold corn beef, butter and buttermilk. 
That is what they had for me down there. And there ain't nothing better than ever I come across yet. Buck and his ma and all of them smoked cob pipes, except the older woman, which was gone, and the two young women. They all smoked and talked, and I ate and talked. The young women had quilts around them, and their hair down their backs. They all asked me questions, and I told them how Pap and me and the family was living on a little farm down at the bottom of Arkansas. My sister Marianne run off and got married and was never heard of no more. And Bill went to hunt him, and he weren't heard no more. And Tom and Mort died, and then there weren't nobody but just me and Pap left, and he was trimming down to nothing on account of his troubles. So when he died, I took what there was left, because the farm didn't belong to us, and started up the river, deck passage, and fell overboard, and that was just how I come to be here. And they said I could have a home there as long as I wanted. Then it was most daylight, and everybody went to bed, and I went to bed with Buck. And when I waked up in the morning, dread it all, I'd forgotten what my name was. So I laid there about an hour trying to think. And when Buck waked up, I says, Can you spell Buck? Yes, he says. I bet you can't spell my name, says I. I bet you what you dare I can, says he. All right, says I. Go ahead. J-O-R-G-E J-A-X-O-N. There now, he says. Well, says I, you done it. But I didn't think you could. There ain't no slatch of a name to spell, right off without studying. I set it down, private, because somebody might want me to spell it next. And so I wanted to be handy with it and rattle it off like I was used to it. It was a mighty nice family, and mighty nice house, too. I hadn't seen no house out in the country before that was so nice and had so much style. It didn't have an iron latch on the front door, nor a wooden one with a bucking string, but a brass knob to turn. Same as the houses in town. There weren't no bed in the parlor, not a sign of a bed, but heaps of parlors in town had beds in them. There was a big fireplace that was bricks on the bottom, and the bricks was kept clean and red by pouring water on them and scrubbing them with another brick. Sometimes they washed them up with red water paint that they call Spanish brown, same as they do in town. They had big brass dog irons that could hold up a straw log. There was a clock in the middle of the mantelpiece with a picture of a town painted on the bottom half of the glass front and a round place in the middle of it for the sun and you could see the pendulum swing behind it. It was beautiful to hear that clock tick and sometimes when one of these peddlers had been along and scout her up and got her in good shape, she would start in and strike 150 before she got tuckered out. They wouldn't have took any money for her. Well, there was a big outlandish parrot on each side of the clock, made out of something like chalk and painted up gaudy. By one of the parrots was a cat made of crockery, and a crockery dog by the other. And when you pressed down on them, they squeaked, but they didn't open their mouths, nor look different, nor interested. They squeaked through underneath. There was a couple of big wild turkey wing fans spread out behind those things. On a table in the middle of the room was a kind of lovely crockery basket that had apples and oranges and peaches and grapes piled up in it, which was much redder and yellower and prettier than real ones is. But they weren't real because you could see where pieces had got chipped off and showed the white chalk or whatever it was underneath. This table had a cover made out of beautiful oil cloth with a red and blue spread eagle painted on it and a painted border all around. It come all the way from Philadelphia, they said. There was some books, too, 
piled up perfectly exact on each corner of the table. One was a big family Bible full of pictures. One was Pilgrim's Progress about a man that left his family. Didn't say why. I read considerable in it now and then. The statements was interesting, but tough. Another was Friendship Offering, full of beautiful stuff and poetry, but I didn't read the poetry. Another was Henry Clay's Speeches, and another was Dr. Gunn's Family Medicine, which told you all about what to do if a body was sick or dead. There was a hymn book and a lot of other books, and there was nice split-bottom chairs and perfectly signed, too, not bagged down in the middle and busted like an old basket. They had pictures hung on the walls, mainly Washingtons and Lafayettes and Battles and Highland Marys, and one called Signing the Declaration. There was some that they called crayons, which one of the daughters, which was dead, made her own self when she was only 15 years old. And they was different from any pictures I ever seen before. Blacker, mostly, than is common. One was a woman in a slim, black dress, belted small under the armpits, with bulges like a cabbage in the middle of her sleeves and a large black scoop shovel bonnet with a black veil and white slim ankles crossed about with black tape and very wee black slippers, like a chisel. She was leaning over, pensive on a tombstone on her right elbow, under a weeping willow. And her other hand, hanging down her side, holding a white handkerchief and a reticule. And underneath the picture, it said, Shall I never see thee more, alas? Another one was a young lady, with her hair all combed up straight to the top of her head and knotted there in front of a comb like a black chair. And she was crying into a handkerchief and a dead bird laying on its back in the other hand with its heels up. And underneath the picture, it said, I shall never hear thy sweet chirp more alas. There was one where a young lady was at the window looking at the moon and tears running down her cheeks and she had an open letter in one hand with black sealing wax showing on the edge of it and she was mashing a locket with a chain to it against her mouth, and underneath the picture it said, And art thou gone? Yes, thou art gone, alas. These was all nice pictures, I reckon, but I didn't somehow seem to take to him, because if I was ever down a little, that was giving the fan tots. Everybody was sorry she died, because she had laid out a lot more of these pictures to do. Everybody was sorry she died, because she'd laid out a lot more of these pictures to do, and a body could see by what she had done what they had lost. But I reckoned, with her disposition, she was having a better time in the graveyard. She was at work on what they said was her greatest picture when she took sick, and every day and every night it was her prayer to be allowed to live until she got it done. But she never got the chance. It was a picture of a young woman in a long, white gown stand on the rail of a bridge, all ready to jump off, with her hair all down her back and looking up to the moon, with tears running down her face. And she had two arms folded across her breast and two arms stretched out in front and two more reaching up towards the moon. And the idea was to see which pair would look best and then scratch out all the other arms. But as I was saying, she died before she got her mind made up. And now they kept this picture over the head of her bed in her room. And every time her birthday come, they hung flowers on it. Other times it was hid with a little curtain. The young woman in the picture had a kind of sweet face, but there were so many arms it made her look spidery, seemed to me. This little girl kept a scrapbook when she was alive, used to paste obituaries and accidents and cases of patients suffering in it out of the Presbyterian Observer, 
and write poetry after them out of her own head. It was very good poetry. This is what she wrote about a boy by the name of Stephen Dalen Botts that fell down a well and was drowned. Ode to Stephen Dalen Botts. Deceased. And did young Stephen sicken? And did young Stephen die? And did the sad hearts thicken? And did the mourners cry? No, such was not the fate of young Stephen Dowling Botts. Though sad hearts random thickened, t'was not from sickness shots. No whooping cough did rack his frame, nor measles drear with spots. None of these impaired the sacred name of Stephen Dowling Botts. Despised love, not struck with woe. That head of curly knots, nor stomach troubles laid him low. Young Stephen Dallin Botts. Oh no, then list with tearful eye, whilst I his fate do tell. His soul did not from this cold world fly by falling down a well. They got him out and emptied him. Alas, it was too late. His spirit was gone for sports aloft in the realms of good and great. If Emmeline Grangerfield could make poetry like that before she was fourteen, then there ain't no telling what she could have done by and by. Buck said she could rattle off poetry like nothing. She didn't ever have to stop and think. He said she would slap down the line, and if she couldn't find anything to rhyme with it, she would just scratch it out and slap down another one and go ahead. She weren't particular. She could write about anything she was to give her to write about, just so it was sadful. Every time a man died, or a woman died, or a child died, she would be on hand with her tribute before he was cold. She called them tributes. The neighbor said it was the doctor first, then Emmeline, then the undertaker. The undertaker never got ahead of Emmeline but once. The undertaker never got ahead of Emmeline but once. And then she hung fire on a rhyme for the dead person's name, which was Whistler. She weren't ever the same after that. She never complained, but she kind of pined away and did not live long. Poor thing. Many's the time I made myself go up to the little room that used to be heard and get out of poor old scrapbooks and reading it when her pictures had been aggravating me, and I'd soured on her a little. I liked all that family, dead ones and all, and weren't going to let anything come between us. Poor Emmeline made poetry about all the dead people when she was alive, and it didn't seem right that there weren't nobody to make something about her now that she was gone. So I tried to sweat out a verse or two myself, but I couldn't seem to make it go somehow. They kept Emmeline's room trim and nice, and all the things fixed just the way she liked to have them done when she was alive, and nobody ever slept there. The old lady took care of the room herself, though there was plenty of niggers, and she sewed there a good deal, and read her Bible there, mostly. Well, as I was saying about the parlor, there was beautiful curtains on the windows, white, with pictures painted on them, of castles and vines all down the walls, and cattle coming down to drink. There was a little old piano, too, it had tin pens in it, I reckon, and nothing was ever so lovely as to hear the young ladies sing The Last Link is Broken and play the Battle of Prague on it. The walls of all the rooms was plastered and mostly had carpets on the floor, and the whole house was whitewashed on the outside. It was a double house, and big, open places betwixt them was roofed and floored, and sometimes the table was set there in the middle of the day, and it was a cool, comfortable place. Nothing couldn't be better. And weren't the cooking good? 
just bushels of it too. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave a review. Five stars preferred, but you have free will. Do as you please. And if you really, really enjoyed, um, both on podcast and on YouTube, you can join the channel by clicking the first link in the description. Or if you're on YouTube, you can click the little join button thing. I'll maybe put it up in the video if I can remember. Um, I'm very concerned about where Jim is. It seems from this chapter that Huck has been with this family for a while. I'm very concerned as to what has happened to Jim. So I hope we find out soon, and I hope that it is positive. I just want Jim to be safe. I just want Jim to be safe. And from all I know about the American South during this time, this family, they may put on a good appearance, but I bet they're some of the most... um, redacted... just, just redacted... um, family that probably existed in the area. Um... So I'm quite concerned for Jim. Anyway, uh, once again, thank you very much for listening, and until next time, bye-bye.